Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. He is a phenomenon in American cultural and political history. Arnold Schwarzenegger came from a small village in Austria to become a global sensation in bodybuilding, transformed himself into a Hollywood blockbusting actor, and then improbably governor of California. I sat down with Arnold in California for my CNN show recently. Here's the full version of that conversation. And action. <laughs> Thanks, Governor. Uh, good to be here with you in this office, which is as colorful and as eclectic as your amazing life. Um, we're here uh, just days before a, a really consequential election, and I want to talk about that. But I have to take advantage of being here uh, with you to talk about uh, the issue of uh, celebrity and politics, because we have a celebrity president now. And um, you, in certain ways, were a trailblazer in this modern era. I mean, I remember very well watching The Tonight Show when you announced your candidacy. And you, were, you, you sold a persona that people knew from, from film. I mean, you were an action hero. You were going to smash... Sacramento and rebuild it, uh, but politics turns out to be different than film in that you can't write your own script all the time. Uh, tell me about that experience of making the transition from, from film to, to the gritty real life of politics. Well, I think that I had become somewhat addicted to the idea of you know, the policy idea and that you can really create change. Uh, because I was, you know, with Special Olympics and worked with that organization and saw the impact that we have and the celebrity power that I could bring to the Special Olympics and how much more of a, of a crowd we could attract and therefore how much more media we could get and so on. And if we could really move forward uh, the agenda of Special Olympics to have it all over the world. And if it didn't matter if it, I went to the Middle East, if I went to Asia, if I went to South Africa and stood there with Mandela, you know, celebrity... Uh, you know, power has a certain power of influence. And so, you know, and then I got involved in after school programs and in the President's Council on Physical Fitness and all those kind of things. So I saw that I have an impact and that I could move things and change things and bring about change. Uh, and and uh, I think that's what led me to run for governor. And there's a huge advantage because, first of all, you have the name recognition factor. And second of all, you have a huge popularity. People like your movies. There's some people maybe they don't like your movies, but they just don't go to see the movie, but they don't hate it because of it. You know, so, they, so you have, you build this huge fan club out there. So I had this fan club from bodybuilding and from the fitness movement. Uh, then I had this uh, from acting, from show business. So that really was very helpful when I announced to immediately have a certain kind of a, a high poll number. And it wasn't just the recognition, though. You, you were the, 
the, you were the terminator. I mean, you were going to take a sledgehammer and smash a system that wasn't working. You, you actually took a sledgehammer during that campaign and smashed a car, I remember, uh, because there was a car tax that you were going to repeal. And people had felt that, you know, maybe this, this guy, because of his persona, because of uh, what the, the vibe that he sends, he's not part of the system, that he can change things. Well, and it is true. I mean, you can, as an outsider, change things uh, because you go in there fresh. You don't owe anyone anything, but also because of naivety. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so when someone comes to you and you are in there and they say, well, this is impossible, then I say, to them, I say right away, well, my whole life I, people have told me it's impossible. It's impossible to be a world champion in bodybuilding when you come from Austria. It's impossible that you can, as a foreigner, become a leading man in movies and become the highest grossing uh, star in a movie or something. All of this was impossible. I said, so I'm not going to take this as impossible. But it was, you know, uh, also naivety. I remember the greatest compliment anyone could make was uh, David Cox, who was the senator, state senator. He said, Governor, he says, you're really politically naive if you think that you can work with the Democrats. And I said, well, let me be politically naive. I said, it's perfectly fine. I said, but I am going to do everything that I can to make sure that Democrats and Republicans come together. I may not be successful. I said, but I'm going to make the effort. And I'm going to let the Democrats know I want to work with them. So I said, you're not going to stop me with that. Well, and you, you got your head handed to you a few times, especially in those early years. They were, you had battles you, uh, that you lost. Oh, tell me what you, what you know now about politics and governing that you didn't know then? Well, before we jump to that, let me just tell you that the advantage of uh, being a celebrity and being the Terminator and the action hero is that people buy into that. And so in a state that has 60% Democrats and uh, a much smaller percentage of uh, Republicans uh, and then independents, uh, it was very hard for a Republican to win. Uh, so, but I won, number one, because I had my wife helping me, that uh, was clear, and um, there were people that knew my policy, that what I wanted to do is to do the best for the people, not to do the best for the parties, so they got that right away. Uh, but the important thing was that I was the Terminator, so there were people, there were Democrats that said, well, he's the Terminator, he's going to terminate the problems. That was the advantage, that's how you get into office. But the disadvantage of it is, is when we had a drought in California and there were in Mendota, there were 42% unemployment because we didn't have enough water. And the federal government said we cannot use this water, this federal water, and because it would ruin the delta smelt and kill the fish and all this stuff. So it was this big fight. So eventually I went up to Mendota to a town hall meeting. And at the town hall meeting, it became very clear. When I said this, I said, look, the federal judge said no. And the federal government says no. Uh, the, the, the Senator Feinstein said no. We cannot turn on the pump to get water to your area. And the, the, the guy, the, one of the farmers screamed loud. He says, I voted for the Terminator. <laughs> I envisioned that you're going to go up there and break the chains, and the water is going to flow up, and it's going to go and bring all this water to our farms, and we can farm and have all the farm. That's what I expected of you. So this is the disadvantage. Yeah. They really believed that I would just break the chain and do all of those things because I, that's what I would do in a movie as Terminator. But that's not reality. So I had to explain to them 
no, this is the real life. This is not a movie. And how, how quickly did that realization hit you that this isn't going to be as easy as it looks? I never, you came from I never, you, 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 you uh, because of your wife's family, you had been around politics, so you had some feel for that probably, but. I have been around politics. I have uh, been very close friends also of uh, George Herbert Bush. Uh, he made me the chairman of the President's Council on Fitness. I spent basically every month, one weekend up at Camp David. I said, I got to really hang out with him in the Oval Office, and uh, he was very inclusive uh, with me, and uh, so much so that his sons sometimes were jealous that he treated me better than them. Uh, but the bottom line was is that I, I had a feel that it's a big challenge to be able to please everybody. You can't please everybody. Uh, so I was not kind of naive about that, and nor was I blind about that. I realized it's going to be a big job, but I was up for the job. I had all the energy in the world. I had the vision of what I wanted to do in California to kind of solve some of the problems, the fiscal problems and the infrastructure problems, the healthcare problems, education problems, all of those things. And I went in there with that full energy. Yeah, but you did sell, the persona was something that you sold. You weren't naive about that either. <clears throat> you live by the Terminator, you die by the Terminator. Uh, and it helped you uh, get elected. So let's talk about the guy in the White House. I think he would insist we've gone several minutes here without talking about him. He expects to, on cable TV to be talked about all the time. Um, what, he, he, you were very different in many ways, but in the way of celebrity, you had this thing in common. Um, he, he had a persona that he sold. He had a character that he sold this uber business guy, who, this infallible businessman who, who makes things happen and fires people who aren't doing their job and so on. That was a powerful thing. Well, that's what made him win. You know, I think that uh, uh, people really bought in to the books that he has written. Uh, they bought into the show, The Celebrity Apprentice, the character that he was. Uh, and uh, so he played that role. And the people bought in on it, and he won. When you watched him, did you, did you, did you see immediately that dynamic? Did you, a, a lot of people didn't take him seriously when he started running. And I know you supported another candidate, Governor Kasich, but did you, from the beginning, say, this thing could take off? I felt that it, it could have the same dynamics as my uh, campaign had. That people for, wanted someone from the outside People were sick and tired of what was going on in Washington. And uh, look, uh, people had all right to be uh, very upset. I mean, you know, that for how, how long can you talk about, uh, you know, building more infrastructure in America? How much longer can you talk about immigration reform? How much longer can you talk about having uh, everyone having health care or having equal education, uh, uh, paying down the debt? all of those kind of things, and nothing is happening. So people felt like, okay, we need an outsider to come to bring in, and maybe he can clean the house, maybe. You know, let's, let's give it a shot. And that's, I think, what happened. Do you, did you know him? I know <coughs> uh, Trump very well, yeah. I, uh, we ran into each other in professional wrestling matches. Uh, we both uh, loved uh, professional wrestling. And uh, we, uh, he came to movie premieres, and he came to events, to fundraisers uh, in New York and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I wrote, as a matter of fact, he many times wanted to contribute to my campaign, and I wouldn't take his money, 
because uh, I felt like I didn't want to take money from gaming casinos because I always promised the voters I wouldn't take money from unions and I wouldn't take money from gaming casinos. Uh, and uh, so that was kind of my policy and that's why I didn't take any money from him. Uh, what, what were your impressions of him uh, before all of this? He's a you know, very talented business <coughs> guy and uh, very easy to talk to, uh, f funny. Uh, I you know, skied with him in Aspen. Uh, many times uh, in the 80s, uh, late 80s, uh, early 90s. And um, so, you know, he was a very personable kind of a character. Do the skills that <clears throat> you learned uh, as an actor, and he was an actor uh, for all intents and purposes, playing the role he played on The Apprentice, uh, are those useful in politics? I think so. I think, look, it, no matter what you do in your life or in the world, there's one thing that you need to do, and that is to be able to sell. It doesn't matter if you're an artist, it doesn't matter if you're a journalist, it doesn't matter if you're an actor, or if you're a businessman, whatever it is, you got to be able to sell what you have. And uh, I think this is what I learned very early on because I went to business school and I also, in, as an apprentice, I learned how to be a salesman in Austria. And so this selling, of your philosophy or the selling of bodybuilding or the selling of your business or the, of your movie or of uh, political philosophy, I think is extremely important to be able to look at the people in the eye and to just say, this is what I'm gonna do and totally believe in it and totally convince the other person to do that. And I think that Trump has been an excellent salesperson and that, that has been in his blood. And I think that's what he did during the campaign. You uh, replaced him on The Celebrity Apprentice and uh, he, uh, he kind of turned on you. Uh, I guess the ratings were not what he wanted. He was the executive producer. And he went to the congressional prayer breakfast and kind of punked you at the congressional prayer breakfast, a weird place to do it. And you, in turn, released a video uh, about him. Did you ever speak privately with him about all of that? Uh, no, we didn't really have any more conversations after that. Uh, look, um, uh, Trump asked me to support him in the campaign, and I said to him I won't uh, because of the environmental stance that he had. Uh, I said anyone that talks about bringing back coal is going backwards rather than forward. I said I, have, uh, uh, I was instrumental and was the force behind uh, passing some of the toughest environmental laws in California. Uh, when we made the commitment to roll back our greenhouse gases by 25%. I said, and I told him all the things that we have done here. I said, so now endorsing you and going with you would mean I turn my back on all of this work that we have done in California. I said, and what I have done with environmentalists and with so many people that really uh, kind of dedicated themselves to get those things done because it's not a one-man show. A lot of people work together on this. And so he understood when I told him that. And... Um, uh, I think that that maybe had something to do with why he wanted to kind of say that uh, about the... You're still angry about this. that. I'm not angry. No, he was. Oh, yeah, maybe he's... But, uh -huh. you, know, I, you know, the thing is, is what you say in public, um, I understand it because I've made mistakes, what I've said in public. I've called the politicians girly man that I regretted later on because I realized <clears throat> it sounds good for my crowd. They were screaming, yeah, Schwarzenegger, yeah, he's the Terminator. But then when I sat down with them, with the legislators, and started negotiating, 
I felt like it was not the right move. You know, that if you want to work with those people and if you want to bring them in and make them feel comfortable and that you are with them, that's not the right thing to say. So I made mistakes uh, in the past. So I understand when he says those things. And then I come back and have my little shtick that I do then on video and all that stuff. But that doesn't mean that I hate him or that I despise him because of that. Talk about playing to the crowd, though. He does that. That's sort of his, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's quite different than what you're describing, the sort of reaching across, trying to find. He, he, he relentlessly plays to his crowd. Is that the right thing to do? I'm not going to tell him what he should do and what he shouldn't do. Uh, we are two different people. My approach is a little different. My approach is, is, is inclusive. Um, you know, that uh, I made every effort in Sacramento to reach out to the Democrats. I made every effort to create a smoking tent in the middle of the Capitol yes. where I brought all the guys down. Because you always try to find that something That's that you have in common. If it is exercising in the Capitol Athletic Club, or if it is having a stogie together, or if having some schnapps, some Austrian schnapps, or whatever it is, let's bring them together and let's be able to, to reach out to each other and talk to each other rather than screaming past each other of what's going on today. You know, uh, Hollywood has been pretty tough on uh, Trump, and you, you've witnessed this um, at the award ceremonies and so on. He takes an awful lot of uh, heat. Um, it, but is that actually good for him, for his politics? I mean, what do you say to your friends about all of that? Hollywood is not the world. Hollywood was against me also. I mean, my own agency that I was with told their guys not to go and campaign with me. So uh, I would not really worry about Hollywood. I had my good friends like Clint Eastwood and uh, Danny DeVito and others that came up to Sacramento visiting me regularly and, uh, and, and, and helping me uh, with my agenda and being out there. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't worry about Hollywood. Yeah, kind of, well, it strikes me that it may have the reverse effect, that his base, his political base, may actually uh, uh, rally to his side when they see these kind of... Yeah, it, 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 Hollywood hasn't really affected anything when it comes to politics. You know, it's great when Clinton wins the presidency, he comes out, he makes a, has a, a campaign fundraising stop and makes millions of dollars here because all the studio executives come together. Or when Obama won, he came out here periodically and he had great fundraisers. Yeah, you can use them for that, cash in the money and go back, but don't listen to the policies. Um, so put, put your uh, political hat on for a second. We're, we've got a few days till this next, uh, to this midterm election, a lot riding on this election, including on some of the issues that you're, uh, that you're working on. Trump is out there now, and he said this election boils down to uh, the caravan and Kavanaugh uh, and the economy. Is that an effective pitch? Well, you know, I'm not an expert in uh, what you he needs to... can't get away to... with that. You can't be governor for seven years of ca the largest state and say you're no, not... No, but I'm not taking the poll numbers. I don't know yeah. what is today really the right thing to say and stuff like that. Um, and uh, you, you're asking me a political question. Yeah. And uh, I have to say to you that I'm very little interested in politics because it sucks. <laughs> uh, because I'm more interested in policy. The, the reality of it is we are at that stage because for 20 years uh, they have promised to create 
uh, immigration reform, and they haven't. Well, let me ask you about and that. I think that it is embarrassing. And the same is, you know, like I said earlier, uh, for, for decades they've talked about the rebuild our infrastructure, there's bridges falling apart, and uh, we need freeways, no, no, and you, we need the high-speed rails, and we need all of this kind of stuff, I, I, and nothing is getting done. I, and so therefore, to me, it's more important to get the job done rather than to but what worry about do? is there a caravan coming or not. And no, but if the we caravan... Would have, if we would have immigration reform yes. where we secure the border Three. and also deal with the people that are actually here, the law-abiding citizens, yeah. and bring them into our system officially and make them be part of and grant them to stay here, if that is worked out, uh, Democrats and Republicans, then we wouldn't have any of those problems. But, Governor, when the president is out there or any leader uh, kind of stoking up sort of this nativist sentiment against immigrants. You're, you're, you're an immigrant. Uh, you must have feelings about that. Well, first of all, there's a difference between a legal immigrant and an illegal immigrant. So one should never kind of uh, right. make a mistake Right, I'm the there. son of an immigrant. But okay, I, so I came over here legally. And uh, I think that without, even though we are talking about all the problems that America have right now, and the screaming and the fighting that's going on, it's still by far the best country in the world, let's be honest. I, I None of the things that I've accomplished, I would have been able to accomplish if it wouldn't be for America. Right. And the day is the same thing. Right. When I go overseas... Isn't it's, that why people it, want to come here? Yes, but I mean, you got to come legally. Right. So, I mean, so, so he the, wants the, to the, cut the, immigration in half, uh, legal immigration, as, as part of his program, you can't be enthused about that. I, I believe that we are a country that has, been, has become great because of immigration and because of immigrants that have worked very hard here and have contributed. And I'm all for people coming in here legally and working and filling the jobs. And if they would create uh, immigration reform where they actually expand the amount of people that come in here legally, because we need them in farming. Yeah. We need them in construction. We need them in the restaurants. We need them all over the place. We're in so an aging country. In so many different mm -hmm. uh, areas, we need them. Yeah. So there is a demand over there. When you go south of the border here, there's a demand to come here. And, uh, and there's a demand over here for those people to come here. So, I mean, you have supply and demand. You have everything right there. Why not bring it together? So, but... The, the fundamental problem is that Democrats and Republicans cannot work together <clears throat> and they are not performing what they're promising. And that goes back to what we hopefully will get into is redistricting reform. Because those guys are locked into their jobs, Democrats and Republicans. Because otherwise it doesn't make any sense, David. I mean, uh, that you have an approval rating in Congress, uh, uh, Congress's approval rating of what, 18% now, something like that, and 98% will get reelected. Plus or minus sense? four. Yeah, plus or minus four, okay, <laughs> that's what you guys always say. But I mean, that's, that's the reality of it, think about that. So that is embarrassing, that's a shame. If a plumber comes to your house and uh, eats all your food and doesn't, doesn't fix anything, you would never hire him back. Well, we don't have that chance with those legislators. We're gonna get, we're, so I, prom we I promise to, that we're, the, we're But that's the fundamental it. problem as long as we can get those things fixed, you will have, because the political parties are not interested yeah. in being public servants. They're party servants. 
and the politicians are being made into party servants. So they serve their party, so they scream at each other because it sounds good to their party and to their basement, they go back home and all of that stuff. But the reality is it doesn't get the job done. I, I want to talk about uh, <coughs> redistricting. I just want to, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the, the midterms and the arguments that are being made. One of them is about uh, now justice Kavanaugh's kind of galvanized both parties and it run, ran headlong into this uh, Me Too movement. And you had your own issues when you ran for uh, governor about uh, allegations of groping and, and uh, un, unwanted advances. Um, you had personal issues that were well publicized uh, about uh, in, in your own life and family. Um, could you have won today in this environment? It's a hypothetical question, right? It is. I mean, uh, I think that I can win <clears throat> any That's election. That's a good political, you're well-trained you're well as a politician because that's what we always say to candidates, don't answer hypothetical questions. No, no, I mean, it's a hypothetical question and there's a reason why you don't want to normally answer hypothetical questions because there are too many real problems uh, around. So why talk about hypothetical things? But the reality of it is I can promise you that any election that I go into, any campaign, I will win. Mm -hmm. So there's no, in my mind, there's no doubt. Okay, so that, yes, there's obstacles. Yes, people will always well, find some, something in your background that they don't like and that they will publicize. And that. That's perfectly fine. This is the way it is. Freedom of speech. Everyone can say whatever they want. But... I think it comes down to the issues, the way you present the issues, and what do you want to do for the people? A, a lot of uh, very uh, significant figures in our society, movie executives, politicians, and others have lost their job over these kinds of uh, charges. Uh, the president's been rallying people and saying this is, the Me Too movement has gone too far and so on. Uh, I mean, wh what is your thought about all of that? You've got a couple of, of daughters. I think that um, some people can think that they went too far. I think uh, the time was perfect. And I think it is good that there's a time where women could speak up and really be heard for the first time. Because so many times women have not been listened to and have not been heard. So I think that's good. Yes, it sometimes goes to the extreme, but that's okay. It was about time that it happened. Um, you heard, and last question on this, you heard that Access Hollywood tape in which uh, then-candidate Trump, well, he wasn't even a candidate at that time, talked about being a star. <coughs> when you're a star, you can do whatever you want. Was that sort of the culture in entertainment uh, that you grew up in? Look, I don't want to comment about his tapes or anything like that. No, I'm just asking it's you a broader a, question. No, no, but I mean, it's like... Um, you know, everyone has their issues, and uh, he dealt with it in his way. I'm not actually and, talking uh, about him, though. I'm, I'm asking, culture changes. Was that sort of a culture in the it entertainment falls, It business? falls into the same category. I mean, when you, you, were, when have, you, were, an act, when you, you were a young actor and so on. It, it doesn't matter if you're an actor or not an actor. Uh, I think that people have a right to look into your background and to dig up those things if they want to. And this is opposition research and they're gonna throw that stuff at you. And uh, they threw at me all kinds of things about steroid usage and about the smoking marijuana and all of this kind of stuff, they threw at me. And I explained it and uh, we moved on. Well, were your interactions with women fair game? And do you, what are your reflections on it now? 
at this stage in your life? Well, let me tell you something. That when I became governor, one of the first things that I did was we organized a sexual harassment course in the governor's office so that everyone can listen to it, so there's no mistakes made. And after I listened to that course, when the instructor told us that if your chief of staff, which was a woman, comes in here to the office and says, and you say to her, I say, I love your dress, it's a beautiful dress. And then within the same breath, say to the, uh, the man, and by the way, your tie, the green tie, really looks great. She could go and take this as sexual harassment. So based on that of what we have learned, I have to say that I stepped sometimes over the line, and I've, I was the first one to say I feel bad about that, because that was not the intention. Because I respect women, and, and uh, you know, so you know, one has to just say, Look, if I made a mistake, sorry about that. But the mistakes that you were, the allegations against you, and I think you've acknowledged some of them went beyond saying that someone had a nice dress, right? Well, it was similar things like that. So it wasn't groping or anything? You, you didn't do any of well, that? Well, someone could maybe interpret it as groping, yeah, yes. absolutely. Okay. Um, there are Republicans out there who, who say, whatever the pre president's uh, style, We've got tax cuts, we've got deregulation, uh, we've got conservative judges, um, and so that's a, that's a good bargain. Uh, and in fact, those Republicans who have been critical of the president have been sort of, that's their kind of, they've been read out of the party, Flake, um, uh, Corker, uh, John McCain was at odds. Uh, with him at the time, he, they always it was that was their hasta la vista baby moment. They were out. Um, it, how do you feel about that? And the kind of state of the Republican Party right now—it's really Trump's party right now, isn't it? I always felt the Republican Party has a, a, a big tent party, and so even when I was governor. There were people way to the right. And then there were people in the center. And I think that as I looked into it, what creates that atmosphere of the extremism is because of gerrymandering. And in gerrymandering, you know, you lock in the Democrats on one side, and if they are really far to the left, you can't beat them in the district and the Republican is locked in there and you cannot yeah. beat him <clears throat> because he will be as far to the right. But then when the far right and the far left go to the Capitol, if it's a state Capitol or in Washington, they cannot get together. That is the problem because they're too far apart. And that's why we have created a reform here, redistricting reform, where a citizen's commission is drawing out the district lines, not based on politics, but based on what makes sense uh, drawing a map. And also we have open primaries, so that now candidates have to speak to both at the same time. So, the even, if you're, the so even if you're in a district that may be skewed to one party or the other, the two finalists have to face the entire electorate. So you may have a more moderate Republican and a more conservative Republican, That's right. a more you, moderate you, Democrat you, and a more... You have, you have choices, oh. but the key thing is, is that we have seen that out of 265 congressional elections in 10-year period, in California, because we have 53 seats, 53 members that we sent back to Washington in Congress. Uh, 
out of this, in these 10 years, only one changed party hands. So they don't have to perform. No one can touch them. Now, within a, as soon as we had the reforms, within the first two years, 23% changed. And uh, there was a whole huge changeover. And so I think that is the direction that we have to go. Politicians should never feel, should never feel safe in their seats. It should be just like any other job, that if you don't perform well, you're out. And uh, right now, we don't have that. People are locked in there, there's job security, and that's why politicians like to draw their own district lines, so they can fix and rig the system. For more than 200 years now, they've been rigging the system, and this is why I said, enough is enough. And it is not a popular thing to do, because Democrats and Republicans will hate you if you reform the system, because in California, the Democrats and the Republicans work together very closely on that issue. Yeah, I mean, this is the fundamental problem, isn't it? If it's up to the legislatures, it is an unnatural act for politicians to legislate in a way that might cost them their jobs. So there was, there's always been this bargain. That's that right. That's one thing you don't... That's right, and that's why touch. it's important to have an independent uh, you know, uh, commission that does the redistricting. Now you, and then now, since then, there's Arizona and um, uh, Ohio that has come on board. Now there's four initiatives that are on the ballot, uh, you know, that it will be, again, if they win, will create great momentum. And I think that we will continue doing that until we have the whole country done. You were just in uh, Michigan and, and, and Colorado. That's two states where, those are two states where two there states is an initiative. Those are in Utah uh, and Missouri. So these are the four states now, and they all four have a chance of winning. If they win, I think this will be a big step forward again. And you have to take incremental steps. But, you know, as I said, I'm an Alabama tick on this. I'm not going to go away. I'm going to continue on doing that because it's the best thing for the country. Because this is the number one country in the world, and I want to keep it the number one country in the world. And the only way we're going to do that is if we make our politicians accountable. You did it here by voter initiative. Uh, I think there are about 12 states or so where they have initiative where you can do uh, these kind of 37 states. Where you can actually do this by initiative. Exactly, and the rest of them you have to do through court. And we have already cases in the Supreme Court. Uh, Sometimes it turns out to your favor, sometimes not, but that's another place where you can go. Mm -hmm. uh, On this issue of initiative, I've always been sort of conflicted on it because some very positive things come out of initiatives and some very negative things, and they're subject uh, in many cases, especially when money is involved, to be uh, overtaken by special interests who spend a ton of money. Look, I used to be in the campaign consulting business. I, I, I was the I beneficiary of some of those, uh, of some of those initiatives. Uh, on the whole, do you think like this direct democracy where voters can make laws through initiative is a, is a positive thing? I think so. I don't buy in when you say there is a negative side to it, because everything is a negative side. You know, every person has a positive side and a negative side. Every banking system has a positive side and a negative side. Political system has a positive side and a negative side. Everything is that. That doesn't mean that we should back away from it. I think we should make sure that we use it wisely. That, for instance, I'll give you an example why I'm very passionate about the initiative process. I went, I started after school programs. And it was very clear that in California we needed another $500 million for after school programs. I went to the politicians in Sacramento and no one would listen. 
the governor didn't listen. They just brushed it over kids. You know, they don't have a lobbyist up here, so forget about it. So I was forced to go and to collect the signatures and to go and do it through the initiative process. We put it on a ballot in 2002, and the people overwhelmingly, even during a recession then, uh, voted 57% for uh, this initiative. And so now, because of Proposition 49, the After School and Education Safety Act, we now have $500 million more for after-school programs. Which is fantastic. I mean, it, it's also true that if you put an initiative on to try and affect environmental uh, uh, reforms, that there are polluters and other, you know, big oil and some of the old uh, uh, fossil fuel industries that will spend a lot of money uh, to try and stop that if you want to reform how pharmaceuticals are Absolutely. sold, lots of money. Absolutely. We have seen it, how we could not get a bill going that uh, brings more water storage in California and all this, because there's the fight where the farmers team up with the environmentalists, all of a sudden usually they fight each other, but then all of a sudden when it comes election time, they team up against, uh, with each other and they spend a fortune against your initiative. And so all these things happen, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it. Mm -hmm. you know, there's in everything there's always a misuse of things. Let me talk to you about, the cli about climate change, which is, as you point out, something you're passionate about. You guys uh, did uh, some very far-reaching uh, environmental reforms when you really led the country uh, in terms of setting standards uh, and uh, uh, for the reduction of greenhouse gases, in terms of setting uh, standards for emissions. You did a, a kind of cap-and-trade system here and so on. And you, even after you left office, you were in Paris uh, promoting the, the Paris Accord that was, that was signed. You mentioned earlier that the president, you didn't support him because of his position on these issues. And to you know, I give him credit, he, he's held fast to that. He withdrew from the Paris Accords. The EPA is uh, repealing many of the admission standards that came into being under the Obamas, and now at war with California over its uh, standards. Can these standards, can this momentum be turned back? Well, I think it's uh, unfortunate that, uh, that he's going in that direction. But at Why the same time... Why do you think time, he is? You have to ask him that. When you do it at the next interview and you do it with him, okay. you can ask well, him Well, give him a questions. call and tell him I'd be eager uh, to have that conversation. I'm sure he has his reasons. Uh, and uh, whatever the reason is, it doesn't really matter because the fact of the matter is we have to adjust to that new environment. And this is why I told everyone in Paris, and I tell everyone wherever I go and uh, hold a, a speech about the environment, that we cannot rely just on one person. And we cannot rely on the federal government. And this is not just Trump. Remember that when I was governor, I fought the federal government also during my time. Because the federal government said, you cannot have a waiver to regulate your own air. Because greenhouse gases is not a pollutant. I said, what? Greenhouse gas is not a pollutant? No, it's not a pollutant. I went to, to meet with the head of EPA, and uh, I met with the president, and everything. They said, well, it's not a pollutant. So we took them to court. Yeah. I mean, uh, my own party was in control then, right? And so we took them to court, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court of the United States decided that, yes, greenhouse gases is a pollutant. Well, duh. I mean, what, uh, how much brain power does it take? I wanted to actually make it much quicker and I say, okay, why don't we put someone in a room 
with a uh, regular, regular fossil fuel car, turn on the engine, let that person that doesn't believe that stay in that room for an hour. Yeah, because these they, gases they, 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 they have health be. impacts as well as impacts on the atmosphere. Well, it's, it's, it's crazy because we are polluting the world and it's not just about global climate change. It is also about global climate change is something that is going to happen in the future and it's a very serious problem. But it is the amount of people that it kills every day all over the world. I mean, every year, 7 million people die because of pollution. So if the responsibility of government is to protect people, then why would I let that happen? Yeah. Now, well, the rates of asthma in cities like Los Angeles and my city of Chicago and all over this, the world uh, speak to some of these health impacts. You mentioned uh, that you took on Republican administrations uh, over this issue. You know, I saw a poll uh, earlier, a couple of months ago, uh, and it said the single biggest issue dividing Democrats and Republicans is this one, climate change. So you as a, a, a leading Republican, how do, we, uh, how do we bridge that divide and have a... a well, David, serious- first of all, I think that environmentalists have done a terrible job in selling this. Because the more they talk about global climate change, which no one understands what that is, and uh, you know, they talk about what's going to happen 20 years from now and the sea level rising and the polar bear and all of those kind of things. No one cares about that when you want to have a job and you want to bring food on the table today. Right. But what people care about is if you say, this is gonna cause cancer. This is gonna make your child have asthma early on. And as soon as they hear the health aspect of it, because that's how we sold it to the people in California. We never said in California, I mean, I least never said global climate change. We found out that the commercials from the Heart Lung Association, when they talk about the asthma the children yeah. are having in the Central Valley, that is what turned everything we around. We had the same uh, insight when I was working for President Obama. I right. mean, <clears throat> climate change was way at the bottom of the list. You, you, can, ask, you, know, you can ask people and you can say, but health how, important is, how important is climate change? It will get like 17% uh, interest. And then when you say how important it is to get rid of pollution, then all of a sudden it shoots over 50%. Mm. So this is the difference. It has to be sold the right way. It has to be communicated the right way to the people, not talk about something that is happening 20 years from now, but today. Every day, 19,000 people are dying because of pollution worldwide. And this is an embarrassment that politicians and leaders cannot sit down and really fix this problem once and for all. Let me just ask you this. You said earlier, politics sucks. And I bet you there are a lot of people who are nodding, particularly right now when they're being bombarded with negative ads uh, going into the midterm election. Uh, but it's important for people, if, if we don't have faith in, in this process of democracy, which I know you value, uh, it just doesn't work. And, you know, I, the the president hammers all the time about the system being rigged and the and and uh, problems in in our democracy. But how do you restore faith uh, in, in in that democracy? Because all over the world we're seeing uh, liberal democracies on the run. You, you're in Europe a lot. You're familiar with what's going on there. Give, give me a hopeful uh, thought on this. I don't I don't understand when you say democracy. Uh, is being challenged here because it's not, as far as I'm concerned. I think the liberal uh, politics is being challenged here because I think that people are sick and tired 
everywhere of what was going on. And you see it in Germany, you see it in Austria, you see it in Hungary, you see it in France, you see it in England with Brexit and all this stuff, Italy, no matter where you go. People had enough, they said to themselves, how much longer can we take of we're ringing up a huge deficit every year, huge debt, who is going to pay that off? When are we ever going to pay that off? Uh, they feel like there's too much spending going on and uh, not enough kind of people sitting down and really agreeing and fixing problems and all this. So they're sick and dying, so they look for something else. Right. Okay, so it's not, it's not that the demand But that's something going, else they look it's for. Some, it's something what they're looking for the opposite. So they say, okay, right. if the liberal politics didn't work, let's get someone conservative. No, let's no, but, but there's a difference between liberal and conservative. I mean, you may consider yourself a conservative, and I may consider myself a liberal, but when you have, for example, in Hungary or Poland, you have uh, leaders who are uh, uh, cutting back on fundamental uh, institutions, the courts, the media, uh, when elections become uh, come into question, that that's a problem, isn't it? Look, America sometimes makes a mistake to always think that only our rules and our way of government is perfect and the way we deal with issues. This is great for America, but the Hungarians deal differently with the issues. The Polish still in, in a different way. The Italians still in a different way. The Austrians still with it in a different way. So they look at our system and they say, this is totally flawed. We look at their system and we say they're totally flawed. So, I mean, I, it doesn't really matter. We shouldn't be interfering with their, as long as they're doing a good job with what they're doing and as long as the people approve of what they're doing. The key thing is, is if you go out and do a poll today and you ask, are you happy that there's no immigration reform? I tell you, the majority of people will say, no, we are not happy about that. Are you happy that there's no, no bridges being renewed and built and the infrastructure is falling apart and the airports are we having kind of like third world country airports and stuff like that? No, they're not going to be happy. So I can tell you, and Congress is getting an 18% approval rating. So that is a totally fixed system. So they over there looking at us and say, that's not what we want, a fixed system where you can't get rid of those politicians. You know, to me, this is why I say the most important thing is not politics. The most important thing is to go and to get off your couch and to do something about it. That's what I always tell people. That's what we teach our people at USC, at the Schwarzenegger Institute. We tell people, says, stop complaining. Do something about it. I mean, uh, uh, this woman, Katie Faye, in, um, in Michigan. I mean, here's a woman that had enough in 2016. What was going on? She, she decided that she creates a commission, a committee that was uh, voters first, not politicians, and she ran with that, and now she has a ballot, an initiative on the ballot, and it most likely will win. So that is what I'm talking about. Create change. If you don't like something, create change. Go do everything you can to unseat your congressman or your senator or whatever it is. What do you do rather than just sit in front of television? It's terrible. Everyone is arguing. I don't know what's going on in the world now. Everyone is fighting. That's bogus. That doesn't do anything. It doesn't solve. Nor does it solve a problem when you see people on television screaming at each other. I, it doesn't I, do anything. It's I, like I agree a on both talking, counts. A bunch of talking heads screaming at each other. But when you turn on the news, you wait for hours and hours to get really news that I can find out what is happening in Nevada, what's happening in New York, what's happening in Washington, what's happening in, in, in overseas, in Africa, in some of those countries. I know nothing. So it's like you say to yourself, you know, that the left is, is, is screaming at the right, that the right is at fault, the right is screaming at the left. And you say to yourself, 
Maybe it's even better to be uninformed than misinformed. You know what I'm saying? Even though I tell, I told my kids as they grew up, I said, you got to read the paper every day and you got to go and be aware of the news. I want you to sit down at night at the dinner table and talk about the current affairs. But now I'm worried about like, they're getting misinformed. Now if they switch over here, they hear a totally yeah. different story than when they switch over there. That is the problem. That also so requires more effort though to, to, to find out whether the information you're getting is really good information. But I agree with everything uh, you just said and it's probably a good time to offer an admonition to uh, people who are watching that go out and vote, there's an election. Well, vote, up. but do more than that. Voting yeah. is, look, it's, everyone knows this, that democracy is not a spectator sport. You got to go and fight for what you stand for. I agree. And if you believe that your congressman or your senator or your governor or your assemblyman or whoever it is, is not performing well, go out and do something about it. This Katie Faye, did something about it. And this is why she, to me, is a fantastic hero. And also, she's a woman. And that brings up another subject, because I think that, uh, you know, Einstein always said that, you know, the, the more you do the same thing and expect different results is insanity, right? Well, that's what we are doing. I think we should just give more of those jobs to women. So let's see what will happen, because the guys have screwed it up so far. So I mean, let women go come in. And that's why I welcome the idea that now more and more women are running for office because maybe they have a totally different uh, life experience yeah. and they look at it in a different way. Maybe they can solve some of the problems. Governor, uh, another important point I agree with. On, I, I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. David, here I wanted to show you this room. This is what I call the Austrian room. And this room was entirely built by Austrians. There's not one single nail or glue that was used here that was by an American. It's all Austrian. And you will see all the pictures, the, 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 the mugs on top, the Austrian mugs and all this. Here is a stove. This is a stove that my mother cooked on. And I brought it over here and this now in this room. And this room is what a farmhouse room would look like because in a farmhouse in the old days were very little. So they ate. Like here's the table, they ate at the same room as they slept, as the bed, they cooked in the same room, they sat in the same room, and they did the schmoozing here and all that stuff. So, and then there's the crib, which of course is also Austrian made, and each one of my kids laid in that crib. And I tied a string around here, and then I was sitting there at the desk, and I was pulling on <laughs> the string until they fell asleep like this. And then eventually they fell asleep and I could work without them screaming and making any noise. So this is very familiar to you, does it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like if I want to switch over and uh, feel like I'm in Austria, then I come into this room. I have a lot of meetings in this room. We have, as you can see, the shot glasses there. So we drink schnapps in this room here. We smoke in this room. Uh, stogies, uh, not Austrian stogies, because it's sauerkraut. It's Cuban <laughs> stogies. Uh, so they, we, we do all this in here. Uh huh. So, uh, and it's, it reminds you of... It's, and it's a, it's a calming effect, the wood uh, paneling and all yeah, that stuff great. has a calming effect. So out there, it's the all where the action has is. a calming effect too. Absolutely. <laughs> a little stogie has a calming effect. <laughs> a little bit of gossiping here, sitting here is, has a calming effect. Uh, come, let's it's amazing, down. you walk in here <laughs> and it's like, so it turns out the Terminator really can go back to the past, right? Absolutely. You walk in this room and you're transported. Past. I can go to the past and I can go to the future. <laughs> but one thing I can tell you, well, that if I would be a, in real life a Terminator and I would be able to travel back, I would travel back 200 years and stop gerrymandering. 
How is that staying on message? That huh? is unbelievable like message <laughs> discipline. Yes, I still it. have the chops. Come, let's sit down. Okay. Why don't you uh, take this side and I'll... So, I had a chance to read your, your book and I know a lot about your story. And it's, kind of, it's a really remarkable story because as as uh, uplifting as this room is, your childhood wasn't uh, uplifting. You were born in a small town in Austria right after World War II. Um, your dad, who had, had, had been a, a, a stormtrooper, uh, was, was a cold person. Um, tell me a little bit about what that was like. Well, I, you know, I grew up, like you said, after the Second World War. And uh, my parents were fantastic, uh, but it was the environment then. They were very strict, and uh, my father wasn't cold. He was very affectionate and very warm, uh, but when he was drunk, then uh, he was a different person. He changed personality. And uh, so he got caught up, as so many other people, in alcoholism and all that stuff. So once a, a week, he would be coming home as a different person, like at 3 in the morning and screaming and, and all this, and there would be fights. Uh, there. Not a really good atmosphere. But in, in another way of it was that he was very disciplined, and he made us do push-ups in the morning. We, as he always said, we have to earn breakfast. And we had us do knee bends, 200 knee bends and push-ups and all those kind of things. We had to go and uh, bring the coal up to the oven uh, every morning. So there was certain a ritual there. And I think that was very helpful for me to create the discipline. The other thing was that life was very tough. And that's what drove me away from Austria. And yeah. it drove me away from my home. And uh, like my mother, for instance, I was 15 years old and I brought home the first money uh, because I was working on some job as an apprentice. And she said, you give me one third of that money. But it was almost no money that I got. And she asked me for one third of the money to contribute uh, to the food, uh, what, what the food costs and so because, you know, we didn't have much money. But I hated that. I, I, I hated it so much that I said, I'm going to leave and I'm never going to come back here. You, uh, you applied that famous discipline to bodybuilding. You started as a teenager, 14. Yes, it 14. gave me the drive to do something about it that I, how did I get away from Austria? I knew that my only ticket out of Austria is to be good in some sport. So I just had to search in what sport could I excel and become a world champion. And I found out through accident that it was in weightlifting and in powerlifting and in bodybuilding. And within a short period of time, I became the European junior champion, uh, won my first trophy, and from then everyone started really paying attention to my but success in bodybuilding. But your parents were unhappy about the choice that you made. They were unhappy about the posters you put up on your wall. They didn't understand. They, my mother didn't understand. She called the local doctor and she said, look, you got to uh, look at this wall here. There's pictures of naked man. And I'm really concerned. This is because all of Arnold's friends have, have, have beautiful women hanging above their bed. And Arnold has this naked man here. This was basically uh, Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston. Uh, it was powerlifters. It was wrestlers. 
He was weightlifters, bodybuilders, but all in the little trunks and stuff like that, and the little outfits. And my mother just couldn't understand it why I have oiled up bodies on my bedroom wall. And so, so did concerned. you actually have to go and see the doctor? No, no, he came to the house. He was one of those things where you have a house doctor. They yeah, come, yeah, yeah, sure. They come by, and and he uh, on the way to go fishing on Wednesday, he was off, and he came by in the afternoon. He looked at the wall, and then he, he calmed my mother down and says, "Look, I see nothing wrong here." I said, this is, he's going through a period now where he idolizes a strong man. That's very good because it makes him train every day. He works out every day, so you should be actually very happy about this progress that he's making. And so my mother then calmed down, but she was also concerned because I would come home during lunch break and I would do you know, 500 sit-ups. And she says, why don't you have lunch and just sit down and relax? That's what lunch is all about. Now we're doing sit-ups out there. So she says, you're going to ruin yourself. You're going to kill yourself. You're going to work, you work too much. You work out too much and all this kind of... So she was always concerned. And uh, was it uh, and, and was it in your mind when you were doing mm -hmm. those sit-ups that this, uh, this might take it out of here? So I'm going to do as many as I... Look, I, had, uh, I was very fortunate that I saw a bodybuilding magazine at the age of 15 where I saw Reg Park as Hercules standing like this on the cover, and it said, Mr. Universe show, uh, it becomes Hercules. And I bought the magazine, read it from the front uh, cover to the back, and over and over again, and I read this whole story, how I became uh, Mr. Great Britain, how he became Mr. Universe, and then got into movies. They said to myself, this is exactly what I'm going to do. And so I was fixed on that. This was my vision, and no one could get me off that. And I, I chased that vision until it actually became a reality. And was it always in your mind that you were going to come to America? Yeah, because America was the mecca of bodybuilding. It was not Austria. Austria was maybe the mecca of skiing, but not of bodybuilding. So it, that's why a lot of people thought it was odd that I would choose bodybuilding. But I thought that would be my ticket to America. And that's exactly what happened. After I have won two times the Mr. Universe contest in London, um, I became the youngest Mr. Universe with the age of 20, and then I won again with 21. Then I got the letter from Joe Weider uh, and said, I want to officially invite you to come to America, to train over here, to compete over he here. A huge, and huge always, icon in the In the bodybuilding world. world, exactly. And so that was kind of my dream became a reality. And then, of course, I won one championship after the next, and I won like 13 World Bodybuilding Championship. And to me, the important thing then was that I do the same thing as this Reg Park did that inspired me, that I inspire millions of others. And so I went out and started promoting bodybuilding and training in the gym and working out and writing books about fitness and all those things. And doing films about it. Oh yeah, doing films about it, exactly. Yeah. Did, what, when you got to America, uh, what, was your, what was your reaction to the experience of being here, coming from a small town in Austria? Well. Um, it was wild. First of all, you have to understand, I can talk about this in two ways. One is um, that I came over here when America went through real trouble. So people think that America is going through trouble now, but this is nothing what it was then. Because remember, I came in the 60s. Yeah. The president was killed, was assassinated. Then Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby. Then Bobby Kennedy ran for president, and just before he had the shot uh, to get uh, nominated, he was assassinated. This is how it began. The Democratic Part, uh, convention in, in Chicago was attacked, and it was like war, all-out war. Yeah. Uh, the Vietnam well. War was happening. The people were running around stoned, like I saw them here on the beach, running around stoned, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I said, what is going on here? 
And then not only that, then it followed up with, with Watergate, the break-in, and then Watergate itself, the hearings, and all that. then a president resigning. So you're talking about problems. And America pulled out of it. And I think America is going to pull out of this too. Because I just want to mention that because so many people say, oh, this has never been like this. I have seen much worse than this. Um, the whole, uh, one of the terms that's been thrown around now is, is nationalism. Um, what does that mean to you, especially coming from, from Austria and what you saw in Europe and so on? Well, I'm, I'm the wrong guy to ask really about this because I'm a, a globalist, you know. So I'm, I'm, I always, because of sports, because I competed all over the world and I became friends with bodybuilders from all the different continents all over the world, black, white, Asian, made no difference what, um, I see the world a little differently because I learned my lessons in sports. So I became kind of a global person. So this is why when I got into the movie business, I told the studio, I said, we shouldn't just go to Cannes or the film festivals and to Rome to promote the movie. I said, we got to go all over the world to promote the movie. And they looked at me and said, they thought that was insane. Well, now they're doing that. Mm -hmm. Because now they realize it is a global economy. And so I, I, I see myself to be, when I go to France, I love France, I love Germany, I love Austria, I love Hungary. I'm shooting right now in Hungary. Um, you know, to me, I don't have an enemy out there. There is no country or no uh, continent that I look as bad or as evil or as anything like this. And I think that the more we make the globe a marketplace, the more we can be successful in America. Because ultimately, this is maybe my Republican coming out of me, is that the ultimate uh, person that we must satisfy is the customer. So the customer has to be able to shop all over the world and see where can he get the cheapest and the best products in the world and then choose from there rather than restricting that. So this is the way I feel about it. But my main love is for America because what America has done for me is so extraordinary. Like I said to you earlier, there's nothing that I would have been able to accomplish without America. Everything I accomplished is because of America. So I'm, of course, a huge fan of America. It's also true not to pull you back from your Republican roots, uh, because af after I was a Republican president, started the Environmental Protection Agency. But you can't solve some of these problems as one country, even a country as powerful as America. Climate is an example of that. Look, we, we are in a global situation. We got to work together. That is the most important thing. We got to face, find ways always to reach out and to work together. And if it is environmental issues, if it's economic issues, if it is terrorist issues, whatever the issues may be, working together and looking at everyone in a more positive way, uh, I think is helpful for everybody. And uh, so, um, again, this comes from my, uh, you know, coming from sports. And having done movies, movies, as you know, is a global kind of a thing. We have actors from around the world in one movie. Uh, we release our movies all around the world. We get our financing from all over the world. So I've seen firsthand the benefit when you include all of the countries. So, you know, you hear uh, some of the American <coughs> first people talking about sovereignty, that we're, they're worried about our national sovereignty. You don't, you don't see globalism as a threat to that. I don't. I think that it is you can have your country and I, can, I think that you can at the same time work with the rest of the world very closely together. So you have photos of yourself here with presidents dating back to Richard Nixon. That's right. Richard Nixon is right here. 
and um, he is the one that was responsible uh, for With me Bible. to become a Republican. Yeah. And uh, when I heard him talk in 1968 with my friend who uh, was a Jewish fellow by the name of Ari Zeller, who also spoke some German and he translated for me when I listened to those discussions with Humphrey and Nixon uh, talking. So when, I, when he interpreted what he said, I said to myself, I said, I'm a Republican. I like that, that, that idea, that philosophy. And he was a Democrat, so he kept, he started getting a cough. He said, oh. Okay. He's, he's absurd, he's disgusting. <laughs> he, he started sniffling and all that stuff, so it was very funny. Maybe he should have given you a different translation. <laughs> so here's an interesting uh, photo. Uh, read this inscription from uh, George H.W. Bush. Well, uh, this is uh, Arnold Turn, uh, down at Turn, uh, because I'm sledding here with a toboggan, uh, whatever you call those things, and uh, we are in Camp David, and uh, right here, is Barbara Bush standing. And uh, so, of course, a sled, the way an Austrian sled is, you, you, you kind of steer it with your, with your heels of your uh, foot, of your feet. Here, this was not the case. So I had no idea how to steer this thing. And so he kept leaning. And he says, you have to lean, you have to lean. <laughs> so we, we, we I slid right into her. And she you broke took, her leg. You took out the first Barbara lady. Bush. That's right, yeah. So, so she went down to the hospital and she got a cast and everything like this. She didn't complain much. Uh, she, <laughs> she understood that it was a little... Were you invited uh, back? <clears throat> yeah, you know, I, I, I told you that I was up there literally every month. Uh, we would get a call um, and, uh, uh, you know, the president was on the phone and he said, look, Bob and I be going up to Camp David. I have some friends coming up there. You want to come up there? And we were up there. I mean, I was so exhausted by the time that the, the, the day was over, let's say Saturday, because he's so active. We were going out there skid and trap shooting, we were horseshoe throwing, we were running, we were biking, we were working out in the gym, we were playing volleyball, you know, volleyball against the wall with the Marines up there, and, and, and swimming, it just went on and on, and then at night we went bowling, there was a bowling yeah, alley up there, right. and then when he, by the time he played, we had dinner over at the house, and he showed us a movie. Uh, I fell asleep because I was like so exhausted. It wasn't one of yours, I hope. You know, it, it was not one of mine, but I mean, they had always great movies over there. Yeah. yeah. So, politics, what first attracted you? When, when was it that you made the realization that this is something I want to engage in, this is something that interests me? Um, I think it's a combination of growing up, uh, I mean, kind of like uh, spending that much time with the Kennedys and with the Shrivers. Um, married and Maria uh, married Maria Shriver, exactly. So watching them talking about policy and politics uh, a lot of times. And then I think what really, you know, put it over the top was me becoming friendly with President Bush and then seeing firsthand of the way he handled, uh, you know, his meetings and uh, when he talked about his, the challenges and when he talked about the joy of giving back and to you know, representing the people and all that stuff. I just really got into this and I said, this is really great, but I had no plan really. You know, I said to myself, maybe one day will work out. And then all of a sudden it was almost like God's will. Uh, there was the recall election. In 2003 and the reason, here in California. The reason why I said God's will, because it was an unusual situation because uh, the reality of it is when you look back, is I would have had a difficult time winning the primaries, the Republican primary. Right? The, 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 because I was not conservative enough. 
So in the recall election, there was no such thing. Right. There was like everyone was in one part. But Democrats and Republicans declined the state and independents, everybody. And there was 150 or some candidates. So, and they were much odder than I was, which was great. <laughs> which was great. So I was not the oddest guy out there. And so anyway, so the, the, there it was. So that's what enabled me. So when we had the recall election, I said to myself, this is the only chance that I ever would get in there and do something like that. And uh, so I made the announcement. Um, I had endless amount of discussions uh, at home with Maria and with the kids and everything. And uh, you know, it was very clear I have to make up my own mind. Uh, they knew that I felt very passionate about it at that point, and I rallied myself up. Certainly, I got to do Maria it. Maria knew what politics was. She, she knew what you would be signing up for. She hated it. I mean, she hated it. I mean, she she just felt like, okay, now we're going to go into this back to this world that I was in, where you were, uh, where you are on the loop, and she everyone grew, is analyzing. She grew, a, she grew up in a fishbowl. Exactly, and so she felt that throws her right back in there where she doesn't want to be. And that's why she moved from Washington to California to be away from politics, only for me to now to announce to get into politics, not into politics, but to the biggest job in California, and probably one of the biggest jobs in the United States, yeah, you know, to be the, the governor. So uh, I think after I made my announcement, I remember Maria was crying when I came home. She was shocked and that they did decide. there weren't tears of joy. No. So no. you didn't, you went off to the Tonight Show and you didn't me mention, let's let these sirens pass. So you went off to the Tonight Show and you didn't say, by the way, I, I may announce I'm running for governor on this show, so you might want to. No, um, we had discussions about it and Maria in the morning when she left to go to work said, whatever decision you make, I will support. And so it was not kind of like, which decision are you going to make? Because I said to myself, it will come out under the night show. <laughs> and I don't even know right now what it's going to be. And that's what came out in the night show. And uh, so, but I think it was in me. Uh, I felt that there was a chance to do that. And I was absolutely convinced that I'm going to take out Gray Davis no matter what. And even though, even though all your Democrats came out here, Clinton came out to campaign for him, and uh, Al Gore came out, and Jesse Jackson came out, the more they came out, the better it was for me, because the more I could sell myself as the David rather than the Goliath. Right? So I said, I don't need anybody. It's just between me and the people. I said, let him have all those kind of endorsements. But you know, endorsements mean bogus anyway. No one pays any attention to the endorsements. So just for the record, you do have photos of Obama and Clinton here I, I, behind all the, the Republicans. That, no, 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 it's not behind <laughs> the Republicans. I know. I know. But I mean, uh, uh, no, I'm very happy. Remember, I was honored when Obama invited me to the White House three times, mm -hmm. uh, especially when it came to immigration reform, when it came to infrastructure, because we were a good example, because we really rebuilt California, yeah. and when it had to do with education issues. So I was very happy to go back there. I can't leave without, you have statues of beautiful busts over here. You may not be able to see them, but of, of Lincoln and Reagan and Kennedy. And then over here, Lenin. What's Lenin doing here? Well, when the communism fell, um, I called my buddies in Russia and I said to them, I said, wait, you know, from the Weightlifting Federation and Bodybuilding Federation, um, and I said, look guys, I said, I'm reading in the New York Times, they're tearing down all these statues because communism is always it, but I love those sculptures. 
I say, you know, I'm a collector of, of bronzes and of art and stuff like that. I said, you know, I think that we should not throw those things away. And they said, why do you want some? And I said, because we have plenty here. And I said, yeah, I said, uh, whenever you can get me something, I'm willing to buy it or whatever. I said, just let me know. So when the next Arnold Classic Sports and Fitness Festival happened in Columbus, they unveiled on stage uh, at the celebration, at the after, uh, uh, you know, uh, event celebration, they unveiled this Lenin statue and gave it to me. So I, I said, this is fantastic. I'm going to put this right in my office. You know, it's, and it is also a great symbol in a way because it is a symbol of, of a political system that failed. And here's a, 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 over the other leaders of a political system that has been very successful and became the most successful in the world. What are the, uh, what, what you, you chose Reagan, Lincoln, Kennedy, uh, around the corner you have Teddy Roosevelt. What is it about those leaders that caused you to want to put their busts in your office? Well, Kennedy was without any doubt one of the Greatest, greatest presidents and greatest communicators. And uh, he was, you know, the first kind of Democrat that came out and started talking like a Republican with business uh, uh, ideas and stuff like that. Uh, Lincoln, of course, uh, was uh, so much at, at his time a uh, really groundbreaker by, you know, wanting to bring blacks in and, uh, you know, to make them be part of America, uh, to give them voting rights and to give them equal rights to become uh, citizens of America and all this kind of stuff. So and also, was, by the way, a big promoter of infrastructure. Oh, yeah, infrastructure. And also, I mean, but there was huge problems, of course, during his time. Yes. Again, uh, it was enormous, but they overcame the problems. And, of course, Reagan, um, he's an actor. Uh, he was a great actor but got into politics, it was in his blood, and became one of the greatest communicators. And he is an idol of mine also because, A, the environmental positions that he took, that he, he created the Air Resources Board in, in California, and he really wanted to clean the environment. And this was the, the, the traditional Republican, like Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, then, not only that, but he was one of those guys that was able to cross the aisle and to work with Tip O'Neill. So Tip O'Neill and he was hanging out together, and I thought that that was really a perfect example of how you get things done. They were two different kind of ideologies, but they were able to respect each other and work together in order to really move America forward, and America was thriving during those days uh, because of both of them working together. Let me, um, let me ask you, as I hear you talk, it occurs to me, um, you, you, you could not run for president because of our Constitution. You're not a native-born American. If you had been a native-born American, uh, do you think you could have been president? Does that occur to you that, gee, I would have liked to have a shot at that? You know, I couldn't tell you that I've, I would have been president, but I can would tell you, you that I would, have, I would have run because I never go and uh, go for something that is not going all the way. So that's not my personality. So to me, it's always like, what is the next thing that I can do? What's the next thing? But this is the only job that I can't do. And so when I take an inventory, the reason why you don't hear me complain about that is, is because everything that I've been able to do was because of America, just because there's one thing I can't do, I'm not gonna complain about that. Governor, great to be with you. Absolutely, thank, thank you. you.
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.